Thanks, Sue. Morning, everybody. If you've just started coming to St. Joseph's these uh, last few weeks, uh, then let me introduce myself. My name's uh, Ken, and I'm one of the ministers here at church. And uh, it'd be great if you could keep that Bible reading open at Psalm 123 uh, as we journey uh, with the Old Testament people through what is known as the Songs of Ascent in these summer weeks, uh, Psalms 120 to 134. Uh, These are songs that the Israelites sang during their holiday seasons as they uh, stepped up, up, up um, to Jerusalem three times a year. Uh, Firstly, for the Feast of the Passover, then the Feast of Pentecost, and then the Feast of the Tabernacles. And as they walked, because obviously in those days they didn't have public transport like us, as they walked, they sang these songs. And Jesus himself would have sung these songs as he went to these great festivals with his family and his village. Whether it's singing the national anthem or or chanting at a sporting event, uh, like I'm sure 50,000 Geordies were really enjoying doing uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, And particularly when we gather to sing on Sundays in, in church, singing together brings us together. It makes us feel like we're not in this on our own. It's not just me. And I think it can also touch and lift the emotions in a way that that very few other things can. Have you found that? And we need that. We really need that, folks. Because we too are on a, a journey together through difficult terrain. We travel to the new Jerusalem of heaven looking forward to feasting joy with Jesus. And to help us through the difficult terrain, God has given us songs and prayers like this. So before we dig in to to see how it can encourage and help us this morning, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word this morning. May the truths in this psalm help us treasure you more dearly and live in your love and light. Amen. Sarah Edwards was only 11 at the time when her friend Julie received some tragic news. One of her best friend's dad's had suddenly died. Uh, And Sarah was really upset on behalf of her friend. And so she went to her mom and she she said, Julie needs our friend Jesus. I'd really like to give her a Bible. And her mom thought this was a terrific idea, a lovely thought. Uh, And so they they went together and they bought a really nice-looking Bible for Julie. And Sarah wrapped it up and put it in a bag and went round to Julie's house. Now, there were a lot of other girls there that evening round at Julie's. And one of them somehow fished into Sarah's bag and found the Bible. And she pulled it out and she started to laugh at Sarah. And all the other girls just started joining in. So when Sarah got home that night, understandably, she was in floods of tears. How could she? She couldn't understand how her friends could just be so horrible. And how God could have allowed this to happen. And she decided that she would never do such a stupid thing ever again. 
this psalm we're looking at this morning, folks, is a prayer for, for when we're at the end of our tether, for when we've been picked on and made to feel silly for our faith, or when we've just had enough, when we've had one of those days or weeks or months or, or years when we, <laughs> when we just want to run away and hide. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said of this psalm, it is the deep sigh of a pained heart. It's just too much. As in verse 3, the people of God cry out, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. I wonder if any of us here can relate to that. Every day we see things on the TV, on the news, in social media, which makes the idea of living for Jesus and believing what the Bible says sound laughable. And maybe you've tried to live for Jesus and speak out for him at school or at work. And friends, colleagues, teachers even have have mocked you and ridiculed you for it. Or maybe the contempt comes somewhat closer to home from family, from our parents, our children, our spouse. Sometimes it can involve cutting words or name-calling to be called crazy or bigoted for what we believe, is, it really hurts, doesn't it? If that's happened to you, you know that really hurts. And even if they're really polite about it, it still feels like a put-down. To be looked on with contempt means to be treated as, as if we and the things that we believe are, are nothing. That's how Sarah was treated, wasn't it? And it's nothing new. Throughout history, God's people have been the object of contempt and ridicule. It's always been this way. Jesus himself was dressed up in a robe and with a, with a fake crown of thorns put on his head and mocked and jeered and spat on on his way to the cross. So it's no wonder that one Bible writer promises us that everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life will, in some way or other, at some point or other, will be persecuted. That's our problem as Christians. We, we have to endure contempt in this world. So what's the solution? Well, the psalmist gives us two. Firstly, lift your eyes to the majestic one. As in verse one, he prays, to you I lift my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. I, I don't know about you, but when, when I feel someone or something is disparaging my beliefs, I, I, I find myself wanting to fight fire with fire and argue with them in order to, to prove them just how wrong they are. Or at other points, run away and hide. Away in my Christian bubble and, and, and never pop my head above the parapet and be so public about my faith in that way again. But the psalmist doesn't do either of those things here. He doesn't look to settle the score or treat. He lifts his eyes to the one enthroned. And please notice that our God is not enthroned merely on earth. 
He is enthroned in heaven. (laughs) And it doesn't get any higher than that, does it? This is a reminder that of God's day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, reigning absolutely over all things. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when we're bruised and broken. I think it's really striking um, to look at Stephen in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, when he's being persecuted for his faith. He's on trial. What did he do? He lifts his eyes to heaven, and he sees the heavens open, and through that window on heaven, he sees the Lord Jesus standing tall, risen and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Just one lift of the head makes all the difference. So look up when others look down on you. And when you do, you may find yourself not only being able to merely tolerate those who slight you or mock you, but like Stephen and our Lord Jesus, you may be able to show them grace. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, Jesus prays from the cross. And you might be able to win them over through kindness. Because our God is a God of kindness. And he promises all the treasures of heaven to those who seek it. So he will give you kindness if you ask for it. And he'll give you patience when you feel frustrated at the end of your tether, and wisdom, when you just don't know what to say. All wisdom is his. There's not one situation in all of earth and heaven that he doesn't know what to do about it. The one enthroned in heaven offers you wisdom freely because he loves you. So ask him for it. I wonder when you're in distress, when friends fail you, when the world seems against you, where do you look? Say with the psalmist, to you I lift my eyes. The eyes of your servants, my maidservants, our eyes look to the Lord our God. When we're enduring contempt, first let us lift our eyes to the majestic one. Then secondly, look to the hand of the merciful one. Okay, quiz time, people. You've still got your Bibles open at Psalm 123. Question one, I want you to look. This is not a rhetorical question, right? Okay, yet sit up a bit more. Pay attention if you've drifted off. How many times does the word mercy appear here in Psalm 123? Anyone going to do it? Can you spot verses two and three? Particularly look there. Got it, three. Nathan, great job, mate. It's three. Okay, question two, moving swiftly along. Does the psalmist ask for anything else but mercy in this psalm? Again, not a rhetorical question. I want you to really look closely. You can talk to the person beside you just for, for 30 seconds or so. If you don't know them, you can say hi. Welcome to St. Joseph's. Nice to see you. Yes. Oh, oh, 50-50 chance. Nice try. <laughs> good, good effort, Thomas. Good effort, mate. 
Anyone? Yeah? Yeah, it's a no. It's a no. This is his one and only prayer request here, folks. As in, Psalm, as in verse 2, the psalmist continues to look. But this time, he, he looks to the hand of God. Notice that. He looks to the hand of God. And behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. But question three, what is mercy? Don't worry, this one is rhetorical. <laughs> um, uh, when I was at school, we used to play a game called Mercy. I don't know if any, anyone else played this game at school, yeah? Um, uh, what you had to do was you had to face off against an opponent, so I'm going to ask J- Jason to come up, all right? And I'm going <laughs> to... Hold my hands up. What you had to do was you had to stand off against your opponent, then you had to take their hands, interlocking fingers, and then you had to push their hands. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to do this for real, right? I don't want to, by the way, I'm, I'm not encouraging you. Just, just stay there, stay there, Jason. I'm not, I'm not encouraging anyone to play this game, okay? I just want to make that clear, all right? Kids, this, this is not a great game, but we, we did, boys being boys in particular, I, I, though I did notice, notice a female hand go up as well, so I think the girls clearly played this as well. Um, yeah, so you'd, you'd interlock the hands, and then you'd push as hard as you can in order to inflict pain, essentially, on the other person. Ow. So that, uh, no, <laughs> actually, why we're, not, why we're not doing it is actually because Jason would totally have me. I'm so, I'm so weak. And then, and then you'd, you'd flick me back, and I would, and I would then cry out, mercy, uh, when it all got too much for me. And that's how, how the game went. And, and I think, actually, although I'm not encouraging people to play that, I, th- I think there is a sense that, that, that that gives us a bit of an idea of what mercy actually is. Uh, sometimes, actually, in church, we get a bit muddled up with mercy. We kind of bundle it in with other kind of, um, you know, g- good kind of Christian words like grace and forgiveness, thinking, ah, yeah, they just all mean the same. You know, he's got of grace and mercy. That's, that's just a re- repetitive thing that's being used in the Bible. But, but grace actually is much more to do with really God treating us, loving us, even though we do not deserve it. Whereas mercy has much more to do with the powerlessness of the person receiving it. Uh, that is, when someone shows mercy to someone, they offer pity and compassion to someone, well, like me, who is weak. <laughs> so grace is undeservingness. Mercy, powerlessness. And that is exactly the way the psalmist and the people of God approach the one who sits in heaven as humble servants or maidservants who in that culture had absolutely no status and no rights at all. And so to, if, you're a, if you're a servant or maidservant in this, this culture, to approach your master or mistress demanding things from as a servant, you were weak, you were powerless, you had nothing, no resources of your own, you were entirely dependent on them showing mercy, being kind to you. And the psalmist says, that's how we approach the Lord. You know in our relationship with the Lord, it's a master-servant thing, don't you? With God in the place of exaltation and power. And us in the place of submission and need. 
But, but this must not be read in the light of it being oppressive or, or, or abusive. Uh, like God is, God, God is wanting just to grab our, our, our hands and push our fingers back until we, until we submit to him, until he drives us into the dirt. No, no. Our master, the Lord Jesus, he had his hands taken and nailed to a cross to endure the pain for our sins. He died there because he loves us. Which is why we have here a a picture of a a willing, not a reluctant servant. It's more Downton Abbey. It's Carson looking to Lord Grantham for his instructions because they are good. Because he trusts him. Because he serves at the pleasure of his master. I think that's often why we don't cry out to the Lord for mercy and and look to other sources like entertainment or our own endeavors for comfort and help in times of trouble. It's because we don't really know and love the master. Because we're too busy serving our own agenda and are not willing to get actively engaged with his. Because we secretly are suspicious that actually He is out to get us and drive us into the dirt. But this isn't how the psalmist thinks. No, he says, Lord, we come to you as willing servants. We we are powerless by ourselves. We're weak. We have nothing to offer. Uh, We have no right to the resources of heaven. And seek mercy from your hand. That's all we ask. And so in verse 3, the psalmist gives us a model prayer that I think any of us can pray. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Uh, Sometimes, I don't know if you find this, you just don't know what to pray. You want to pray, but you just don't know what words to use. I think any of us could pray that, couldn't we? It's not hard. It's not a prayer full of big, clever, theological words. It's not a fancy prayer. It's not long or impressive or showy. This is a heart cry. Have mercy. I've got nothing. I I can't do this. I I need your help. This world is distressing because this world is, is a hard place. And we often feel so weak and powerless, don't we? And so there are many things in our world that mock us. Those who stand against us, yes. The devil and his temptations too. But also as a nation and a church in this nation, things just seem to be going from bad to worse, don't they? And these things mock us because we don't have power. We can't do anything to fix them. And I guess ultimately death is the great mocker. It laughs at our attempts at life. It mocks our ambitions. It is an enemy, a ruthless, arrogant, proud enemy. And so we must cry for mercy. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. That is a prayer you can pray this week or any week. 
And it's a prayer that we need to keep on praying. Do you notice that in verse 2? The psalmist says, Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. In other words, God's people must be persistent in prayer, patient in prayer. We must keep asking God for his mercy, keep asking him to work, to use us, even in the trials of life. And that's not easy. But yet again, our Lord Jesus models this perfectly for us. As the night before he died in the, in the garden, with, it seemed like everyone against him, his enemies gathering around, ready to arrest him and put him on that cross. What did he do? He followed the psalmist solution. He lifted his eyes to the Lord and he prayed. He waited patiently, trusting, willing to follow his father's instructions, saying, not my will, but but yours be done. He gave his life, his future, his hope to his father in heaven because he serves at the pleasure of his Lord. What do you want God to say to you you when you get to heaven? Think about that for a sec. I think there's nothing better than hearing these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. C.H. Spurgeon, the famous 19th century preacher, encourages us with these words saying, the well done of the master is given to faithfulness. It is not well done, you good and brilliant servant. Perhaps the person never shone at all in the eyes of those who appreciate glare and glitter. It is not, well done, you great and distinguished servant. For it is possible that they were never known beyond their own native town. You may be feeling battered and and bruised this morning. But, folks, we are all in this together traveling to the promised land, to the new Jerusalem, and we are not to give up. For what we have here is a picture of servants. Yes, they're tired. Yes, uh, they're ready to give up. But because of their love for their master, because of all that he has done for them, they're ready for action. And how do we keep going when it all gets too much? We lift our eyes to the majestic one. And look to the hand of the merciful one. Uh, Maybe as we do that, then God steps in straight away. And he puts a stop to the mockery and the insult. But it might be that how he steps in is to strengthen our hand to endure, to help us remain strong in times of suffering. Or it could even be that God will pitch up and show us that it was all worth it. Do you remember Sarah and Julie and the Bible? Well, it's a true story, and it's years later, and the girls have lost touch. But one night, Sarah's cousin received a phone call from a friend of hers. He had just finished doing a university mission, and he asked, is your cousin Sarah Edwards by any chance? Last night at the CU mission, there was a girl called Julie who gave her testimony, and she began by saying these words. 
When I was 11, my best friend gave me a Bible. How kind it was of the Lord to give that, to reveal that to Sarah. In her weakness, he had indeed shown her mercy, shown her favor. All along he was watching, leading, working. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it was God who put the idea in Sarah's head in the first place to give Julia a Bible. You see, the suffering that night, it would be worth it all in the long run. It really would. And maybe even the way that Sarah stood up for her Lord that night is what made her faith stand out as genuine in a world full of lies and fakery. So let's close with a word of encouragement I think we need to heed from Hebrews 12. Therefore, therefore, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shape, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father God, the one enthroned in heaven, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he not only shows sympathy to our pain and suffering, but deep empathy too, because he knows the paths that we walk. We thank you that anything that he's endured, that we've endured, he himself has known. And we thank you that he is the one who has been victorious over all sin and suffering, over death itself. So we pray as we come to sing together, help us as we do that to look to Jesus and cry mercy, that we would have a strong sense of our Lord's presence here with us and his love for us, and that he would bring to our fragile hearts healing and strength for the battles that lie ahead. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.